All right, I want to hand out, there's a, a special note that I didn't give you, but I'll give you now. And uh, what I'm handing out here is a summary of the kingdom program in the Old Testament, and I've referenced it. You'll probably notice a footnote on it. This is an exact quote from uh, Michael Vlock's book, He Shall Reign, for He Will Reign Forever, on pages 249 and 250. Uh, we got to wind this up in about three weeks. So, because Juana starts and everything started. And uh, my point is, if you really want to get into this subject, believe you me, this is a vast subject. Uh, the, the, uh, the original book from which everybody really quotes is from uh, The Greatness of the Kingdom by Alva J. McLean, who was the founder of Grace Theological Seminary. Anybody that writes on the kingdom probably quotes from him more than anybody else, including Michael Block, including uh, the other book I mentioned was uh, The Millennium by, I don't think that's the right title, but I do have, I did hand it out in the original notes, by, uh, oh, who's the guy at uh, Expositor? Waymire. Matt Waymire. Uh, I would suggest if you really are interested in this, get either Alva J. McLean or Michael Block's book, He Will Reign Forever. They're probably the classic books on this particular subject. Other people have written as well, but these two guys have really covered it, and uh, Michael Block has kind of updated uh, McLean in some of the things. So I quoted, I caught this, in, uh, and uh, Hey, Ron. In Block's book. Block also has YouTubes that explain each point out there if you, want, if you really want to go out there and, and research. Okay, it. Uh, maybe you could get us how to get to, 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 can do that. Block. You just go to YouTube and search Michael Block. V-L-A-C-H. Yeah, V-L-A-C-H. And he has, he has all kinds of YouTube videos of, of each of these things. Of the book. Yeah, research. I'd suggest you do that. Uh, really fill it in. Really fill in uh, <coughs> what we're doing here. Why don't you get him for the conference? You know, uh, we uh, we've got there. a guy coming. Yeah. Well, Peter like down, Gammon, the, down the line. Down the line. So he wants to. Might be able to get him in just. <coughs> yeah. Because yeah. his his home area is Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah. He's been here. Yeah, he's taught here before he got famous. Yeah. <laughs> right. I know Michael. Uh, known him for years. I've been with him for the last number of years. But Great I knew, guy. I knew him when he was in Lincoln, and, and uh, I preached over there several times, and Michael was there. Anyway. Uh, uh, here's a summary of the Kingdom of the Old Testament program. I thought it was uh, uh, kind of pertinent. I'll just read it quick. If you got a question, you can read along with me. God is sovereign. Uh, he created the universal kingdom, and he's king over all. And he created man in his own image to take it over. Man fails. The fall result, resulted in a cursed creation in which man is subject to death. Creation subject to futility. God promises a future savior, a sa future savior, a Satan serpent crusher, and a curse remover from the seed of the woman, who will save man and restore the creation. God unleashes a global flood to judge the world. He chose He chose Noah as uh, to keep mankind, preserve animal kingdom. Through the Noahic Covenant, God produced stability of nature as a platform of carrying out his kingdom. Through the Tower of Babel uh, incident, God instituted ethnic diversity and nations to carry out his original plan. And then uh, 9, God's restoration of the worldwide kingdom is mediated through the Abrahamic Covenant. And 10, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
uh, uh, program grow in number in Egypt? How long did they spend in Egypt? 400 years. 400 years. That's a long time. They went in at 70 and came out at two and a half million. All right. Uh, God rescues his people so that they can be a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19.16 with the promised land. The Mosaic Covenant is a means through which Israel could be set apart for God's purpose. Uh, 13, Israel has promised a spiritual and physical blessing for keeping the Mosaic Covenant and curses and dispersion for disobeying it. Next page, God predicts Israel will possess the land of promise only to be dispersed because of covenant disobedience. This will be followed by a restoration of Israel from uh, the nations, both spiritually and physically. Fifteen, God is, a, is God's kingdom on earth is mediated by through Moses, then Joshua, through the judges, eventually the kings of Israel. Joshua through Jeff Chronicles. I'm in that right now in my daily Bible reading. Maybe some of you are too. Uh, 16, with the Davidic covenant, God promises David an eternal kingdom for Israel. And uh, he gives them this covenant in order that they can uh, uh, live up to it. Israel flourishes under David and Solomon with the kingdom uh, and uh, Solomon's history of idolatry puts the kingdom of Israel on a trajectory that eventually leads to dispersion. You can read that in the Bible as well. With the end of the kingdom of Israel, the prophets became the spokesmen. That is after the Babylonian captivity. The prophets became the spokesmen for Israel. They proclaimed both judgment and covenant disobedience and a future restoration in a kingdom of under a Davidic leader. Uh, and that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Because of Israel's failure to be a kingdom of priests, God will raise up an ultimate Israelite, a servant, who will restore the nation Israel, and that's the servant of Isaiah 42, 49, 52-53. God will mediate a new covenant. This is where I jumped ahead, I think. A new covenant through Israel that grants a new heart and indwelling spirit to God's people so they will obey and allow God's people to experience kingdom blessings. The prophets reveal a coming day of the Lord when God will judge the nations of the earth, purge His people Israel. This will be followed by a Davidic kingdom on earth centered in Jerusalem under the Messiah in which both Israel and the nations will be God's people. In the Old Testament ends with the expectation God will fulfill his kingdom promises while his people wait for deliverance. Any questions? Something up? I was going to do it, but when I found his, I thought, why reinvent the wheel? Alright, we want to talk about the conflict of the ages during the incarnation, and we want to get the background in you know, or the background or the origin. When the incarnation of the Son of God is born, the incarnate Son of God is born, the conflict between the kingdom of Christ and Satan really opens an open warfare. The Satan opposition is fierce, and all male babies under the age of two are slaughtered at the announcement of his birth. And the showdown comes on the Mount of Temptation between Christ and Satan. The first sin in the universe is pinpointed in the mind of an angel who was given the position of the guardian of God's throne. Take a look at Isaiah 14, 12 to 17. This is where this conflict begins. And let's, let's specifically read verse 13. Now this passage is taken, starts out talking about the king of Babylon. But it goes beyond the king of Babylon to a superhuman or a super being. Verse 12, How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? That cannot be the king of Babylon. You've been cut to down to the earth 
you've weakened the nation. Somebody read verses 13 and 14. <coughs> you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Okay, that last phrase, I'll make myself like the most high, or I'll make myself like God, is the uh, coup de grace of this section. He wants to be like God. And uh, I, I like it when he goes down to Sheol when his time is over. Uh, the people who see it gaze at you will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth to tremble? Who shook the kingdoms? Now, some feel that this might be a picture of the Antichrist. But realize this, that Satan's arm is the Antichrist. The Antichrist is Satan incarnate in flesh. He is the right hand man or the right arm of Satan himself. The Antichrist who is yet to rule. So the context is basically eschatological and uh, refers to the millennial rest and so is Babylon. Future Babylon, who's the king, Antichrist, verses 13 and 17. So uh, this is probably the fall of Satan. I will be like God. There's another passage that talks about this in Ezekiel 28, verses 11 to 19. That's right. Yeah. And what is the reference to the set of the Mount of Assembly in verse 13? Okay, uh, I will sit on the Mount of Assemblies in the recesses of the north. I, I would take that to be. He would be over the angelic world. Okay. He was, after all, the highest creation of God. So would that refer maybe to his third that followed him? Or the, or yeah, well, they, uh, I'll sit up there, and, and when he fell, according to Revelation 12, a third of the angels fell with him. He didn't fall alone. So there's billions and billions of angels, and a third of them went down with him. Revelation 12. Rod? There's something interesting I found in, uh, if you read 9 to 11 before you get to there, it's like a taunting of the kings of the earth. To me, that's interesting. Go ahead and read those <laughs> Because, uh, okay. Sheol from beneath is moved for you to meet you at the coming. It stirs up the dead for you. Even all the chief ones of the earth that has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. All they shall speak and say to you, Thou art also become weak as we, art thou become like unto us? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and thy noise is of the vials. The worm is spread under you, and the worms cover you. It's like a taunting of the kings. Sure. There's no king in hell. So, so you can say you're a big president over here. Well, if you're an unbeliever, there ain't no cakes or presidents down there. Yeah, the point is that uh, he becomes like everybody else in yeah. judgment. He was a big shot. Right. And I, I don't want to, you know, you got to be careful. Of, uh, when you read the book of Jude, you have to be careful that you don't speak ingraciously about Satan. You don't want to make fun of him. He's awful powerful. And uh, take a look at Jude chapter uh, 1. There's only one. Right. you think verse 11, 12, there Somewhere Refresh my memory on that one. Yeah. Right before Revelation, you're looking for it. Okay. Uh, it's a, there's a discussion about the, the burial of uh, Moses. Look at verse 9. And uh, we read, But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him 
a railing judgment, but said, what? The Lord, Lord rebuked you. Where did these televangelists come off rebuking the devil? Have you ever heard him say that? Devil, I rebuke you. They don't have that kind of authority. And uh, verse 10, but these men revile things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals by things that are destroyed. But the whole point of Jude is be careful what you say about Satan. Rather than you going around rebuking him, turn him over to the Lord. James almost verbatim to Yeah. Yeah. Don't speak evil of authority. In other words. And I know that's hard to do in the political situation we're in. But uh, be careful. Uh about that. Alright. Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19. This is a, 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 a prophecy against the king of Tyre, but it goes beyond that. Look at verse uh, 11 and 12. Somebody read that. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. You are the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now that cannot apply to the king of Tyre. It applies to the one behind the king of Tyre. Notice what else it says. You were in Eden, the garden of God. King of Tyre wasn't there. Who was? Satan. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the ox, the jasper, the lazuli. Somebody got a better pronunciation. Okay. And go on. And, uh, and uh, last part of verse 13. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were, verse 14, the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there, and you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. And 19, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will be cease to be forever. So here's another description of Satan who was created as a perfect being. The cherub who guarded the throne of God lost his position. Now he was created, I believe, on the first day of creation. So he saw all this happen. And he saw human beings being able, as Henry M. Morse postulates, he saw all of the creation of man who would have billions of offspring. Whereas angels were unique creative, and they would all be worshiping God. Why not me? I'd like to be like God. I'd like to have that. There's a cult that kind of takes off after that. It's called Mormonism. And uh, the men have as many wives as they can have and have as many children as they can have. And ultimately they come to a point where they have their own solar system and have their own earth. That's the height of pride, isn't it? That's their goal. So Satan was the highest. When sin, the pride of sin entered his mind, he was expelled from his position in the third heaven, and he was down to the second heaven, and then ultimately to earth, then ultimately to the pit. So he's on a downward trajectory. Now there was a transfer of power. I'm not going through this because we've gone through it. I go through it fairly fast. 
when Adam listened to the Satan, there was a transfer of power. Adam was to be the king. When he listened to to Satan rather than God and rejected God's word, Satan then, power was transferred to him and he became the king of the earth. And every encounter between good and evil is a part of this battle. Between the seed, Christ's kingdom, and the kingdom of darkness. Now there was war in the heavenlies. Personally. Let's take a look at that in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Job chapter 1, 6-9. God is sovereign over Satan, though he rules on this earth. But God opens a window for us to see what happens behind the scenes in this cosmic war. Before Satan could touch Job, he needed God's permission. Unless Job wrote the book, he was never privy to this information. Somebody read Job 1, 6-9. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Wow, have you considered Job? And uh, I don't have the rest of it there, but uh, you know the rest of the story, right? He says the reason he serves you is because he's so rich. He's the richest man on earth. Why would he not serve him? What does God say? Know the story? You asked him. Go ahead and take it away. Yeah, take everything away. But don't touch his life for hell. And you read the story, everything just happens. Bang, 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 bang. He loses it all in one day. He loses his ten kids. He loses his house. He loses he loses everything. And Job remained faithful. I don't know if we could take that. <laughs> really. Wake up in the morning, I mean, I, I know people who have lost their house in a fire. What a devastating thing that is. To wake up and you don't have anything left, no pictures, you don't have anything left, that's devastating. Can you imagine losing your house and then losing all your children? Wow. Well, they have a meeting again in chapter 2, 1 to 4. Somebody read that. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered to the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth, a blameless, upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. Okay. Take all his help. But you can't touch his life. A couple things that are interesting there uh, in this story. We didn't give the whole thing, but you can, you know it probably good enough to, to see it. Number one, uh, Satan couldn't touch Job unless he had permission from God. You and I all have a hedge around us, right? From that passage, there was there's a hedge around Job. Uh, Satan couldn't pierce that Job and pierce that hedge unless God gave Job, Job permission. So all of us have that hedge. And what does 1 Corinthians 10.13 tell us? 
Right. No temptation will be taken or given to you, but what such is common to men. It's not unusual what temptation you and I will have. But what does the next line say? But God is faithful, who will not suffer you and I to be uh, tempted more than we're able to bear. So, when in life, in all of our lives, a little rain must fall. And there's going to be tough times. But none of the times are going to be greater than you and I can bear, and none of the times will God allow Satan to go further than so far. And it will never be greater than you and I can bear. You believe that? Now what you can bear and what you think you can bear are two different things. Yes, Ed? Wouldn't that be the power of Jesus Christ that makes it possible for us to bear it? Sure. You know, apart from that... That's a way to escape. The way to escape is to go to the Lord. Yeah, James 4, the other part of that is draw near to the Lord and the, the, that's at the end of the chapter. Draw near to the Lord and the devil will free from you. You don't rebuke Satan. You go to the Lord and you trust Him and Satan will flee from you. And so all of, all of uh, Job's health was gone. I mean, he, had, he scratched himself with broken pottery. Itched. Yes, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I know that we've referenced a few old books, but one of my favorites is uh, Tozer's Pursuit of Holiness. And I think it I think that's his. But anyway, there's a section knowledgeable. That's what yeah. knowledgeable. I'm sorry. And I remember really like thinking in one I don't remember where it is even in the book, but there's a section in there where he talks a little bit about this and temptation. And um, and he you know, argues it's in it's training too. Like this is training your mind. Um and I remember one of the points he made was the the feeling of being able to overcome temptation um, comes after submission to Christ and when he shows you your sinfulness and compared to his holiness and you kind of see that in the review mirror and that made a lot of sense to me because there's a lot of times when you kind of realize days, weeks, years or whatever after something and you're like man yeah, God totally brought me through that. And it gives you more courage, more perseverance, more hope, more character, all that Roman stuff. Well, I remember standing by a car with my wife dead in the car and saying, okay, Lord, you said you'd work it out. I gotta trust you to do it. And he did. I have no clue about that. I mean, at a time like that, your mind races a hundred miles an hour. I mean, you think of everything. It doesn't slow down. It just races up, and you can't get control of your thoughts. And God has to slow down your mind, because you think of everything. From, at least I did. From one end to the other end, just raced across my mind. And I'd just been through the book of Romans on Romans 8, 28. That became a very valuable verse to me. My God will work all things out. Uh, and uh, for your good and his glory. And you just got to trust him at times like that. Now I can tell you right now that unless the Lord comes, I'm probably going to face uh, deeper temptations or trials than that including your own death. You gotta work them out too, right? You gotta come to the conclusion if unless you're gonna be killed instantly and you're on, on your deathbed, you're gonna have to do simply what our daughter-in-law did. This is a chariot to heaven. This is my way out of here. As my dad told me when he found out he had uh, pancreatic cancer, he said, I've always said there's only two ways to get out of this world, the Lord coming for me or death. 
can't get out of here any other way. And uh, Job, uh, not only did he face this, look at Job 2, 9 and 10. His wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept God from, or good from God and not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. I mean, even his closest companion abandoned him. Curse God and die. I think the story of Job is an encouragement to all of us in, in many ways. Because sometimes we all come to the end of the road and it just looks like there's no other way to go. It's dead end when it's really not. It's kind of a hard deal on health, wealth, and prosperity, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> on the last part of that verse. I think what you ought to do is give $10,000 and uh, God will give you twenty. <laughs> yeah, right. That's what they're saying. Oh, goodness. What I like is when he says, were you there when I laid the foundation? Yeah, I love goes, the last part. He goes through all that, you know, God yeah. saying. Yeah. Job explained every way, you know, through the book. Because his three friends said, you have got to have done something wrong for this kind of a calamity to come. This is unheard of. And Job says, well, I don't know what I did. I gave to the poor, I was generous, I did all this. What did I do? And then he says in chapter 9, he says, you know, uh, God, God is up there and I'm down here. I wish there was a mediator between God and me. God doesn't understand how it's, it's like to live in a sin-cursed world. So his prayer was there would be a mediator. Well, God answered that question. You got one. You got a high priest in heaven who's lived on earth, who knows what it's like to live on this earth, who can come and, and you can go to him, because he's been tempted in all likes you are, and me without sin. What a what a way God has resolved these kinds of issues. I think there's so much here that doesn't get talked about too. Yeah, right? we could go the whole book of Job all evening. But let's look internationally behind the scenes. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 12, 12 to 14. Daniel is praying, what in the world's going to happen? Uh, the, the captivity's about over that, that Jeremiah predicted. The seven years of captivity are about over. Now what? So we get this prayer. Go ahead, you have something to say? Chapter, chapter 10. What did I say? Twelve. I jumped the gun. Ten, twelve to fourteen. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the, of the Persian kingdom res resisted me twenty-one days, then Michael, one of the chief priests, or excuse me, chief princes, came to, to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Okay, Daniel's been praying and there hasn't been an answer for three weeks. And it wasn't that God didn't answer the prayer. He came with an angel. Is this Gabriel, I think? Not sure. It's, it's, it's chapter Michael. nine, verse. But Michael came to help. Yeah. Gabriel came with the answer. Yeah, Gabriel was the one who sent. But he got he got stalled out because the prince of the kingdom of Persia. So we've got princes of the fallen world kingdom of darkness who are over the nations. There's only one good angel over the nation, and that's a nation what? Israel. Israel. And he's Michael. What does that tell you? What kind of prince is over our country? Not Michael. Not Michael. 
why, why do you think we're going the way we're going? There's a demonic power behind everything that's going on. Now I give you an understanding of what will happen to your people. Daniel 10, verse 21, and uh, through chapter 12, verse 1. However, I'll tell you that what is inscribed in the writing of truth, yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael your prince. In the first day of Darius, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I rose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Chapter 12, verse 1. 12, I'm sorry. I didn't jump far enough. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. At verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awaken, these everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So when God sets his kingdom in order, eventually Michael the prince over Israel will come to the front. And Satan and all his uh, leaders <coughs> will be defeated during that particular time. Now, when you think about what God is doing behind the scenes, what God has done personally, he's in this contest with Satan in some sense. Look at Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What kind of enemy are we facing, folks? Princes of nations, authorities, powers, heavenly places. We're in a cosmic warfare. And if it weren't for Jesus Christ, we being his children, we wouldn't have a ghost of a chance. So, the it seems as if the pattern is both in Jesus's life where we're leading to, and then the kingdom, like that part in Daniel twelve that we just read. That it's like as the kingdom, which Jesus was, Jesus's time on earth was this little bubble of a kingdom traveling around, right? So that as Jesus is, is creating the kingdom both in his time on earth and now in the second kingdom, that the spiritual warfare, the demonic warfare, the satanic warfare amps up to meet that, both in Jesus' life on earth and then at the air. At the end, obviously culminating with them having a it will appear. It will appear after the Lord is gone, that Satan has won. But when, uh, but what happens in heaven in Revelation four and five, the uh, the title deed of the universe is in the right hand of the Father God, and it's a beautiful story. John says, "Who's gonna? Who's gonna? Who can take the title deed of the universe?" The usurper has been living on the earth. But here we have the title deed, who can inherit it? Up, step, up steps the Son of Man. And he takes that book. And everybody in heaven, and you're going to be there, and you're going to enjoy this particular moment. This is going to be a dramatic moment to watch the Son of God. It's also described in Daniel. But, you, but the Son of God is going to walk up to the king of... To the, God himself, the Father, take the title deed of the universe. And there's going to be rejoicing for all of us who have lived on the earth. We've all seen what Satan has done. And now in heaven, in a clearer way than we've ever had. And we see Jesus take the title deed of the universe and it's got seven seals on it. Sealed seven seals. 
And every time Jesus opens a seal, a judgment happens on earth. Bang, 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 bang. And he gets to the seventh seal, he rips that open, and there's now trumpet judgments. Seven trumpet judgments. So an angel blows a trumpet, and a judgment takes place on the earth. And you get all six judgments, and you get to the seventh judgment. The seventh trumpet judgment is bowls of wrath. Seven bowls of wrath. The seals take a little bit of time. The trumpets are faster and more severe. And the bowls of wrath are quicker and really severe. By the time the last bowl is done, the earth is done. And Jesus Christ comes. That's the end of the tribulation, right? The end of the king who took the scroll, the title deed of the universe, is now claiming what's his. And you're right, Thomas, when Jesus comes, it is an invasion of Satan's kingdom. And he treats it as such. He's invading my kingdom. So the first thing he does, he tries to wipe out the birth by killing every baby under the age of two. Remember, uh, Satan isn't omniscient. Nor is he uh, omnipresent. He's at one place at one time. But he's, he's brilliant. I mean, he's had how many thousands of years to understand the human mind. He's brilliant. But the one thing that's really interesting to me, I often wonder, how is it if Satan knows so much, why does he keep fighting against God? God is his creator. How in the world does he think he's going to win? Now, I've only come to one conclusion. Maybe you got a better one. But sin is so deceptive. Makes a fool out of the person who does it. Yeah, you can't say that he's veiled. Yeah. Like, you know, first Corinthians. Like yeah, you I can't say that he's veiled, he's seen. I had four or five uncles who smoke like steam engines. And you know, get cancer from smoking. So it came out that and back in those days, you get cancer from eating cranberries. So they quit eating cranberries. <laughs> What's the difference? You're smoking like crazy, and you're liable to get cancer from that. But the minute cranberries come out, you don't eat cranberries, but you're not going to give up smoking? You're not really worried about it. But sin is so deceptive, so deceptive, the guy that robs a bank thinks he's going to get away with it. People lie and they think they're going to get away with it. Numbers says, be sure your sin will find you out. Your sin will eventually find you out. But somehow we have this mistaken notion in our old sin nature that we can pull this off and, and get away with it. You're not. You don't. Look at David when he sinned. God forgave him but he had to deal with the ramifications of his sin. The sword would not leave his house. He lied about it. Remember how he tried to cover it up by uh, having uh, Uriah killed on the battlefield? Alright, so the showdown comes in Luke chapter 4, 1 to 3. Someone read that please. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Okay, that's the first of a of three temptations at the end of forty days. But notice uh, for forty days in verse two being tempted by the devil. For 40 days, he faced the devil face to face, eyeball to eyeball. 
Now, how long was, uh, how long did it take Adam? About a millisecond. <laughs> he saw Eve, offered the fruit, he took it. Didn't take much of a temptation at all. Alone with God or alone without Eve? I'm not making him a hero. He just transgressed the word. But Jesus, the last Adam, faced the devil for 40 days. He was hadn't eaten anything, being a perfect man. He ate, he ate nothing for 40 days, and the first temptation came at his weakest point. Apart from thirst, one of your drives would be hunger, right? I get hungry between 12 and 5. <laughs> and I think I'm going to die. And look what, look what it did to Esau. He sold a birthright because he was hungry. And he loved uh, Jacob's lentil soup. Smelled good. Jacob was sly enough to say, you sell me the birthright, I'll give you this bowl of soup. Jacob said, I'm going to die anyway, so I might as well have that. What's that good as that to me? I'd rather have the bowl of soup. And then you have the other temptations, we could make a case out of that. But Jesus answered, Jesus answered every temptation how? He went to the Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone. Okay, God's going to take care of you. Jump off this edge of this temple, this 90-foot drop. Jump off and let God take you care of you. What did Jesus say? You shall not tempt the Lord your God. I saw that a few years ago when this guy uh, who jumps, who was going to jump this canyon, remember that? Years ago, he's going to jump this canyon. Uh, he was good. No, he wasn't going to jump in a tightrope walk. And uh, the smiley guy from Houston, remember him, the preacher down there? What's his name? Joel Osteen. Yeah, Joel Osteen. Was standing on the sideline. And he was praying, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus. And I watched the whole thing. And it was windy. And this guy had a long pole. He looked at me like a couple times he was about ready to go. Then Olstein would really get on prayer. To me, that's tempting the Lord your God. What if he'd have fallen? What would people have said? God couldn't help. You don't need to put God in those kinds of places. And that's what Satan was trying to do. Do something spectacular. Last temptation was, I'll give you all these kingdoms. If you want, worship me. Worship me. You don't have to go to the cross to get these kingdoms. I'll give them to you firsthand. And what was the Lord's answer? You shall worship the God and Him only. So how do we handle temptation? We go to the Word. We said it earlier. God will not tempt us above we're able. God will work all things out. We sit down and work over the word in our mind and say, I know this is a terrible temptation. It can be to lust or it can be a temptation or a trial. The word can go either way. When those trials come, we just stop and say, Lord, okay, just, just for a moment, let me get my bearings here. I'm not going to panic and run off in 40 different directions. I'm going to stop I need your wisdom and I need your help. And the Bible tells us in James chapter 1, if anybody needs wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally. And I pray it if not. In other words, he's not going to chew you out when you ask him. You say, he's not going to say, where were you yesterday when you made a dumb decision? He'll give you the wisdom you need. Stop Take advantage of that. I'm just, ne I, I never cease to amaze. I get into a problem and I panic or I 
go off in a different direction. Just stop and say, Lord, I need your help. I need your wisdom. And it's funny when it comes. A lot of times it comes in prayer. I'll be praying for somebody and for things and all at once. In the middle of the prayer, your mind ever wander? <laughs> Mine does. And I wander in the middle of prayer, and all at once I'm thinking the, the problem through it. Yeah, here's what you need to do. Sometimes it's a schedule or something else I'm wondering about, but there are times when it's uh, I have to say, Lord, get me back on track. I'm worrying about mowing my lawn and when I should do it. <laughs> Lord, this is not why I'm here in prayer. And it's bread mowing his. <laughs> I always, uh, when I pray and think about mowing the lawn, I always look out my window to see if Fred is beating. That's an issue. He lives next door to me. Now the underpining that goes on, underpinning, that goes on, is the battle continues during the ministry of Christ by manifestations of people being demon, or possessed of demons, and through the fanatical reaction of religious leaders who were determined to kill Jesus. Look what he says in John 8, 44. Speaking to the religious leaders. You belong to your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. To whom does he say this? Yeah, religious people who tried to thwart him, and he says out loud, you're of your father what? The devil. This is demon-sponsored. Look at Matthew 16, 21 to 23. This is a believer, by the way. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and, but he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Wow. That's the strongest rebuke Jesus gave to any man. And he's a believer. Believers can be duped into agreeing with Satan through their own ignorance and sincerity. You've got to know the, you got to know the word. We'd have been in trouble if it didn't happen. Right. You mean if, Peter, if Jesus didn't go to the cross? Right. Yeah. yeah, that's what Satan wanted. And he lined up with it. I think Peter was totally sincere. I don't want you to suffer. But ignorant. Ignorant of the word is no excuse. I ran a stop sign one time, one of these that fold down. And I'd gone through that intersection many, many times. And one time I was up, and a cop was right behind me, policeman, was right behind me. And I crept through the intersection. His light went on. He said, you just ran that stop sign. I said, I didn't even know one was there. He said, ignorance of the law is what? It's all you know. No excuse. So I got a ticket. I deserved it. I should have paid attention. No problem. The demons were in total submission to Christ. Look at Mark 3.11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. Yeah, they all admitted who he was. They knew who Christ was. It says in James, even the demons shudder. They know who he is. But when Jesus said, come out, 
they came up. And remember, it came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and they had this father who had a son that kept falling in the fire. A demon took him and wanted him to fall in the fire, and the, and the disciples could not do it. But Jesus did it. And he told his disciples, this kind comes out with prayer. Personally, uh, Christians cannot be demon-possessed. They can be influenced, but not possessed. To be possessed means that uh, that uh, you're totally controlled by a demon. I remember I was a chaplain and uh, got called to the uh, police. They had a young girl there in her teens, and she swallowed about anything. They were saying this girl swallows about anything. And she was fanatic. And I said to her, you know, you need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. She just bolted him and ran. And I, I, I was shocked. <laughs> Took a couple policemen to get her and hold her down. I don't know whether she's demon-possessed or not. I can't make that judgment. But that was a shock to my system when I saw that. And when you see what people can do on some of these uh, drugs, stuff like that, and I think chemicals and drugs and alcohol can break down the resistance to uh, normally to withstand the power of, of, of the devil or his demons. People do strange things when they're drunk, and people do strange things when they're under drugs. Breaks down the normal resistance that we have toward others being in control of us. Any comments? Time's up. Are demons fallen angels? Yes. If demons are fallen angels, then we have no explanation for demons. Maybe just look at Revelation chapter 12 just to The devil is going after uh, Israel because he knows that if he conquers Israel and wipes out Israel, he's wiped out the Bible. Chapter 12, verse 1 of Revelation, a great sign appeared in the heavens, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, on her head a crown of twelve stars. Takes you back to the uh, dream of Joseph. Remember his dream? And why does she have twelve stars in her crown? Twelve tribes. And she was with child, and she cried out in being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. On his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon who stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when the child gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Then later in the tribulation, the, the look at verse 9, the dragon has described for you. The great dragon who was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, and who deceives the whole world. So in case you wonder who the dragon is. All right, we'll end there on that high note. <laughs> the high note is he's thrown down. And it says his angels were cast out with him. Yeah. And his angels were thrown down with him. Then in verse 10, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before God day and night. So you know what's going on in heaven? 
Hey, look at Joe Blow. He just sinned. How does he deserve your heaven? You're a holy God, and you said you saved him, and he's sinning? Who's our advocate? Jesus Christ. He's our attorney. And he stands there with scars in his hands and his feet and his side. Case dismissed. He paid for that. If you got a ticket or he gives a bill and you've already paid the bill, all you got to do is show the receipt, right? And probably you've had to do that. I've had to do that. I paid this bill. Here's the receipt. Oh, I'm sorry. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have saved us and called us to eternal life. Not on our own merits, but on what Jesus Christ did for us. We thank you, Father, that you justified us and declared us righteous. And we thank you, Father, that we can come to you in prayer. We can seek your help. We can gather your wisdom. And we can face any trial in life. Your word is sufficient. It's able. And we, Father, can live our life out down here victoriously. And we can be, Lord, uh, looking forward to all forever to be with you. We thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.